Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to our inaugural podcast. Here, I'm going to be focusing on the newest trends and the old problems of the digital advertising sector. Focus will mainly be on people behind the technology that keeps changing things every few months, as we all know. These change makers have strong philosophies about why they are doing what they do, because advertising is a really tough business, as we all know. And that's what I want us to get into most. For those out there that are interested in doing your own thing or learning about the details behind the newest ideas, this should be a good place to get the straight truth. I'm hoping that this is the kind of place where we can uh, talk uh, straight and get beyond the marketing spin of what everyone sees, sees what, uh, and, uh, and let's see some, some of what's behind that curtain on all the new buzzwords. So I'm really happy to introduce our first uh, guest. We have Chris Cunningham, an industry vet, successful founder, CEO, investor, advisor, uh, et cetera, et cetera. His CV reads like a dream job checklist for any of us in the industry. <laughs> Most recently, he was the uh, president of Unicast, the location data company started in Norway, and it's now growing quickly in the USA. Uh, he founded App Savvy, which was acquired by Iron Source in 2014. He's the founder of C2V Ventures and a serial entrepreneur. So, again, thanks, Chris, for being on the podcast and uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, Jeremy, thanks for having me, man. This, is, uh, this will be a lot of fun, and thanks for the introduction. So I was actually looking up your CV as I was getting prepared for this podcast. You and I have known each other for a while now through the industry, but um, and I want to talk about App Savvy in a bit. But first I wanted to go back to Webs, Inc. Uh, because wow, we're, guy, we're going back. I it, like it. Yeah, we're going back. Because a guy I know, Zeki Mokarzada, uh, he was a co-founder there. Did you did you know him? His brothers were like the co-founders. Yeah, there. of course. As a co-founder, yes, I knew him. Uh, I worked with them. Yes, wonderful human. Yes, yeah. It's, well, so we all went to high school together. It's 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 pretty funny because the cognitive uh, co-founders we all went to high school. This high school, Montgomery Blair High. It's like this magnet computer science school in, in Maryland. And uh, and Zeki started started WebZinc and got sold to. Um, Vistaprint, and I just I just thought it was a small world uh, coming around when I saw that on your on your uh, on your CV on LinkedIn. Yeah, no, that's uh, I, yeah we we've connected the dots on a few things, uh, Jeremy, but not not on the web um, story. Uh, yeah, the the, the 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 you know a couple seconds on that is um, I was at an early social networking site called Bolt.com, which a lot of do you remember Bolt by the way? Yeah, I remember. I remember yeah, that. it was kind of like a, it was competing with Alloy, twelve to twenty-four year olds, right? Pre pre Friendster, you know, Facebook, MySpace, but also very early. Uh, so you can kind of do the math there. So I was there and um, uh, kind of cut in my teeth selling online advertising, and uh, I was approached by Sherwin Fisherbar. At the time, he wasn't the Sherwin that we know today. Kind of, you know, infamous first Uber investor, and and um, um, 
you know, um, you know part of, uh, you know, founder of Hyperloop and all these sorts of things out of the Bay Area. So he actually pulled me out. Um, I was going to continue a job with Facebook, uh, staying, and he was extremely persuasive um, and charming and, and all those things. And uh, I joined, you know, I did a couple of trips down to Silver Spring, Maryland, which uh, on the Amtrak and, and met with, what met with at the time Jeremy it was called Free Free Webs, which I think was possibly the worst name you could ever give a company um, <laughs> by putting free on the front of it. And I kept trying to explain to uh, Haroon and Becky uh, and the, you know their four brothers actually uh, 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 Idris and Yaha, and um, they, uh, they they stuck with it. But yeah, I had a nice run there and, and built out their commercial business. Um, the, we the funny tidbit there um we introduced the first um custom branded widgets you can google this if you don't believe me it's all out there on the interwebs um and uh at the time we were going to charge six figures for a widget to be branded um but it was basically uh that business on top of websites you know uh not a natural fit we had a, we had a good time with it for two and a half years um uh, before I went to go start App Savvy. Yeah, so so you started out in sales uh, in your career, and then you made this transition to founder CEO. How how did you do that? How did you make that transition? Why did you want to start your own thing? And and then how at that point, after doing sort of self serve website sales and things like that, how did you uh, get into the mobile space, especially pretty early on? Yeah, I mean, I love this story, and 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 um, and and um, it, it was really just just probably. I'm sure you had similar moments in starting cognitive um, when you just an idea presents itself, and it, you kind of you're you're willing to run through, um, you know, a house on fire. And uh, I was on a flight from San Francisco to New York, and like started seeing all the evolution of Facebook apps and the, the Canvas page um, being introduced via Facebook. And with all my brand and agency relationships, I, I the thought was that this was a new frontier. There was new inventory. Um, this was apps in 07, remind you. So the term then was very nascent, um, if not non, it wasn't believable. And in the fact, Jeremy, at the time when I started it, it wasn't even mobile yet. It was only Facebook. So the right. idea was to to introduce brands to sponsor, get them to sponsor Facebook apps and integrate in a way that was you know relevant and provided utility and contextualized basically something we call native today. We, we, we hatched then. The two biggest mistakes is, is not sort of owning all the IP around anything that started with apps, because I believe we were the first and now there's a thousand um, and maybe, maybe native. Um, so maybe I'm not as smart as I think I am. Um, but um, that was the, the start when we, when we started app savvy, which was 07 from my apartment and it was just this really strong will to know that there was an opportunity to work with these developers. Three year, three and a half years later, we pivoted that business from the Facebook uh, ecosystem into mobile. Yeah, so so can we talk a little bit about that? I mean, how, what's it like to start a company? First of all, it was it was cutting edge. Those apps were were growing very quickly, but they were uh, the environment is as we all remember it was a little messy, not the most beautiful. Uh, you could put ads anywhere, um, and then Facebook decided to basically shut it all down, or, or you know, sort yeah. of went away. So, wh- what was that like? Well, you know, getting up on something brand new, cutting edge. You know, cognitive is also sort of the first mover in a, in a new space, and um, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear 
you know, your experience in being a first mover and then, and then having the environment totally switch on you um, yeah. and having to pivot. Yeah, no, um, it was, um, you know, we had a lot of eggs in that basket and, um, and, and we grew 3 million to 10 million to over 20 million in our first three years, no technology, so like a service business, exclusive rep firm for the Facebook ecosystem. You know, 70 people raised a lot of money and we were kind of on fire. And then those subtle changes started happening. And a lot of it was tied to abuse by the user base, right? Send in, send, remember the days of like sending a pizza to your friend or poking them and doing all this shit. And, I, you know, quite frankly, Facebook, Zuck in particular, was not incorrect in not wanting to devalue the user experience. So, you know, a constraint would be made. And then a month later, another constraint, and then a company would die, and then 10 companies would die, and then another constraint. And at the end of it, Jeremy, we basically just had games. Games were the only ones that survived. But the dirty secret to that is if companies like Zynga, um, you know, and Scopely and others, they were paying, um, you know, Playfish, et cetera, they were paying a 20%, 25% tax to Facebook. So ironically, the, the handful that survived, the last of the Mohicans, were the ones that were generating the most amount of money, and therefore Facebook, you know, I think at one point they were generating more money through that ecosystem than they were with brands because they were building up their brand ecosystem around that time. Anyway, it put massive constraints into our inventory, basically evaporated it. We had to go through a really hard time of, of layoffs and kind of explaining to our shareholders what the hell happened. So it wasn't a very pretty time between 11 2011, 2012 into 13, because we were kind of, you know, readjusting. And what's 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 interesting is I've where I'm seeing this play out every few years. And it's, I'm glad you asked the question because it's, it's almost like, you know, people do need to pay attention. I mean, you know, the the, the examples of it working is a company like Cheddar, uh, where John Steinberg I think probably saw a window to leverage the highway and a user base very quickly, but but also very quickly move on to other platforms to syndicate its own audience and to reduce the dependency. Um, and uh, I can't remember the name of it, but I just read a blog post like two months ago where a popular New York-based tech startup shut down because of Facebook. So it's still, it's still happening. And, you know, given what's happened with, the, with, with, uh, um, with, with Facebook in the last couple of weeks and Zuck being on, uh, you know, facing Congress, you're going to see even more businesses kind of go out. So it's, it's, it's a trade with the devil. Um, you know, on one side, you get this big, this, this audience to kind of leverage and build a business, which is, you know, it's kind of hard to ignore. But on the flip side, um, it's a very slippery slope if you don't have uh, some diversification maybe on other platforms beyond Facebook or you don't have a strategic plan beyond Facebook to generate revenue. Right. Yeah, and, and speaking of sort of those, structural changes that can that can make it tough for business uh you just recently finished at unicast and unicast is this great location data uh company they're they're very big on beacons and things like that but i'm just wondering how you see something like gdpr coming down and uh changing a lot of that data space you know it's something that we think about at cognitive because we're 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 a client of Unicast and uh, use location data to help us build uh, our understanding of the consumer space. But um, with GDPR, it's been uh, very unclear how we're going to do 
uh, in a European expansion and what data will be available to us for training the models and things like that. So where do you see uh, things like GDPR uh, in, the, in the space of location? Sure. Um, you know, I, I publish something. I, I, do my, I do my prediction piece every year, and, and one of them was GDPR is going to be, you know, what, um, sort of the comp was Y2K, right? A lot of built-up hype and conversation and not much happened. I'm going to kind of soften that prediction a little bit. I, I think it is more serious and um, given what's happened uh, only in, in recent weeks. Um, I don't believe there's going to be any overarching sort of uh, overhaul um, uh, on businesses and, and kind of taking that Facebook uh, conversation we just had where think people started going out of business. I think, you know, a few things will, will happen. Some companies will choose to ignore the, the warning signs and, and continue to operate and um, hope not to get caught. I mean, I know no different than um, speeding. And, of course, you know, for, 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 for a listener, you know, this is very much tied to user consent, both opt-in and opt-out. So I think some are going to take the approach that we're, we're small, no one's going to kind of identify us. A lot of popular belief is that they're going to look for an example to make, uh, uh, to, to, use an, uh, to use an example, sorry, a big company uh, to really put constraints and fines out of Europe. Um, so, so, you know, the idea was that this is really going to be a European thing, but now the attention is so high that I actually think ad tech companies and more conversations are going to be sort of asked in regards to how people are policing this or at least getting consent. And you're not going to want to be on that. You're not going to want, you're not going to want to be on that hot seat. So I kind of see it, Jeremy, as like nothing, nothing happens overnight or the next day. I think, what is it? May, you know, happens May 25th or something. So the next day. But I do think no different than how the markets respond when there's a, you know, a terrorist attack or something sort of overarching. I think there's going to be a ripple effect where if you weren't a necessary buy or a partner and you were kind of selling your way in, I think you could potentially see yourself being pushed out, not because you did something wrong, but more so of the skittish, you know, impact that, um, you know, the media makes of it. And I think a lot of times, what happens is the media is kind of the biggest culprit. You know, you can look back from, from you know, uh, Facebook friend pages to, uh, to to anything else. You know, there uh, anything in ad tech, um, viewability, bots. There's always kind of the the noise kind of comes out. There's some sort of ripple effect, and it's only later where you begin to like dig in a little bit. So I, I think it's real, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how both investors respond from putting money into the market, which I think is going to slow down, and also how startups respond. Um, one more comment. I think you are going to see pivots. I think you are going to see companies that kind of had a so-so value proposition pivot into, um, if they have the ability to, ability into something that looks like moat for verification, you know, something that looks like it can support some of these over these changes that are coming about, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's one theme I think of this podcast is that uh, our industry changes every few months. And sometimes it's because uh, there's some abuse and you need new technologies to handle the abuse, such as verification and things like that. Then there's, regulatory environments like GDPR and we just see new companies and new ideas springing up all over the place. And so oh, yeah. that was sort of my next, my next thing that I wanted to touch on because you're an investor. 
you know, you started C2V a few years ago, but you've been, you've been an angel. You've been in, in this, in, in these things for a few years now, you're an advisor to a lot of companies. Um, what, what are you, what are you looking at right now? What are you thinking mm-hmm. about? Uh, you know, obviously I want you to say machine learning and AI because that's mm-hmm. what cognitive mm-hmm. does, but um love to hear some some high level trends that you're thinking are are going to be the next thing. Well, 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 I'm not sure if we just scheduled this call on the day that I actually posted on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and everywhere else that one of my companies <laughs> got acquired by Adobe. <laughs> that uh that um 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 front and center um uh, around built around AI. In, in computer vision specifically. So I think if there's a, some sort of supporting evidence here, um, uh, Uru, which first started off as computer vision for kind of the video space and using, you know, br- you know brilliant minds from Cornell Tech to identify blank canvas and video to display ads beyond sort of traditional banners, that was what, that's what I invested in, started moving into kind of brand safety because the market was telling them to, but the underpinning, Jeremy, was uh, artificial intelligence. So the company just got uh, acquired by Adobe on Friday. I just shared, um, at least for my, my, my network and my syndicate today. Um, so, so clearly I believe in the space. Um, C2, but to rewind a little bit, C2 Ventures was basically hatched three and a half years ago under the premise that as a founder and CEO, I've just made a lot of mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes running a company for seven years at App Savvy, and you know, while I continue to get better, even as an operator and president of Unicast, so you know, lots of great things built the business from zero up to seven figures. But you know, there's things I could have done better. The point is, the and why I started it was while the the, the ecosystem is littered with lots of early stage seed funds, what it lacks is hands-on experience where people actually have the time to hustle and help founders navigate the, the classic challenges that they're going to have. Everything from pricing around to when should I hire my CRO to how do I accelerate and get my MVP in the market? And what I do is I write a check, but I take a healthy amount of advisory shares. That's non-negotiable. And I pick companies that have kind of a mobile first consumer tech uh, data and data falls into AI um, that was kind of the first sort of anchors, and since then I've done uh, three in kind of fintech with one uh, a blockchain company that that actually is live in India now. I think it's one of the first. So um, data, which includes AI, I mean data is obviously broad, and and some in consumer tech. I have 15. Um, I think I've been having a pretty good run by all indications in, in three and a half years as far as return, and the companies that are there still feel very um, I feel very bullish on. Uh, one one went away. So I guess that's a decent bet in average. Um, but those are the kind of companies I believe in. I certainly think that, that you know, those are the ones that are going to be the underpinning, not just for ad tech, martech, which obviously you and I have built our companies around, and that's how we know each other. Um, and, and, but also those that are reintroducing, you know, credit, how to get a credit score and, and credit cards and how to link banks and financial institutions. And so um, these are areas that I'm excited about, but, it's not just the area uh, it, 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 since you asked about C2V. It, it's also about the founder, which generally represents 75% of the decision-making, quite frankly, at, at such an early stage. And can I contribute and help in that particular space? Uh, unfortunately, if a drone company approaches me, even though I think it's, or cannabis, 
even though I think it's going to be a massive space, I just don't know if I can actually lend as much value. So I try to stay on focus with, with what I'm trying to do. Great. Awesome. A lot of, a uh, lot of different areas to cover there. So why don't we, why don't we start a little bit on that last one as we're, as we're on the sort of investor topic, you know, you, and I, and I hear this a lot uh, uh, generally is, as the advice you're given when you're thinking of starting a company, uh, they, you know, the VCs, the investors, the angels, they're, they're investing in founders. They're not investing in, yeah, the idea has to be interesting, but they're really investing in the founders mm-hmm. um, and founding team um, that I found as a New York uh, founder was when we did the, the uh, Sand Hill Road shuffle and all that stuff, we, we found a very different philosophy or, or um, experience from the uh, Silicon Valley folks versus the New York folks. Do, do you do you think that there's a difference? I won't I won't lead you into what I thought the difference was, but just wondering in your experience, have you have you found like New York City based investors and business people to be a mm-hmm. little different in their approach? It, it's night and day. I mean, it's not even. Uh, yeah. You know, these companies on Sand Hill, and I've done that roadshow too. They're making five bets a year, and it's not bullshit. They're like literally looking for billion dollar outcomes and they're, you know, ad tech, Martech to them, they feel like they've all done a few deals. And in a lot of cases they've gotten burnt. I mean, just look at the Lumascape, right? I mean, there's, they all have, you know, one or two bets in there. So they're kind of, they're, they're kind of numb to it. What they don't see is what you and I see and what other, while there's still fresh capital coming in probably from New York is, you know, ad tech and, uh, you know, they're, they're still, there's still green pastures. It just depends on what the what the what problem you're trying to solve for. Martech companies that are more software and SaaS based versus the ad tech, which is more dependency on agencies. Um, you know, so I think there's you know New York. You're just closer to to Madison Avenue. You're closer to the publisher base. Um, you're okay with hundred million, two hundred, or half a you know half a billion swings. But if you look recently, you know, I was the first, I was the first angel into Arbor, which sold to live ramp for, you know, 160 million in December 17. Um, the moat guys had, you know, almost a billion dollar uh, exit. There's, there's still big um, outcomes happening, but predominantly out of the New York community or East, East coast community. Cause I think they see the potential. Whereas on the West coast, I think they're a bit, they're all kind of eating, you know, they're the same same couple hundred people are talking to each other unless it looks like Uber or Snap. Um, and look, I'm not saying that's wrong. It all depends on, you know, if, if you're on fund four and you've raised a couple hundred million, the expectations and stakes are bigger. I actually just think it's a different audience and a different kind of play. But more so, Jeremy, I think what they miss is they think that it's kind of done in a lot of cases, that the space uh, has already reached its peak. And, it, and if you're looking at it from an ad network from eight years ago, then you're probably right. But if you're looking at it as new, new technology, including AI, that that um, the sort of rethinking and being and is more optimal um, to the billions of dollars that are still being spent. Um, so if you look at it that way, right, that's a good way of looking at it. Mobile, mobile is where that's the front and center screen. There is um, you know hundreds of billions of dollars being spent in, in advertising. That's not going anywhere. So how do you refine that? How do you make it better? How do you improve upon it? There's still lots of appetite there, but Sandhill, and by the way, I just came from the West Coast a few days ago. Um, uh, Jeremy, I don't know the last time you've been up there, but they're all moving from Sandhill into the city um, yeah, for yeah. a different topic. They're all in San Francisco now. 
Yeah, yeah. No, no, I think no, my, no, one wants, no one wants to drive down there anymore. Yeah, it's far, man. It is not close to the city. So, uh, you know, one of the things I was I was thinking about, though, from a founding perspective, was that I've always felt that New York City angels and VCs are, uh, when you talk about investing in founders, I feel like they're really looking for a very strong success track record versus, you know, we hear all these stories about um, the, the, the startups in Silicon Valley, you know, it's almost a badge of honor that you've started something and it's failed. And I've never gotten that feeling from uh, a New York VC uh, when they've, you know, been looking at founders. I feel like the New York guys are always looking for, you know, pretty good success track record. Uh, how do you feel about that statement? Yeah. Um, it, so is the question um, how kind of the New York community sort of well, user approaches? Yeah, maybe run that by me one more time. Yeah, when you're looking at a founding team, you know, what are you looking for? Sure. Okay, yeah, I got you. Well, first of all, um, this has changed over the last decade. No one, and certainly my, one of my principles, no one's investing without a technical co-founder. Uh, I just don't think that's happening. You can't, yeah. you can't invest into um, marketing savvy guys or girls. Uh, that's just a mistake. Um, you need someone, and, and, you, and you don't want somebody that just come on year one or year two because they're incentivized. They're not as incentive. Uh, the incentives, sorry, don't align as much as those that were in the, in the trenches day one. So Tesco co-founder, um, a must, no question. And then one that actually has done it, been there, broken some things and built something successful, um, you know, the, whether it's, um, you know, the guys over at M Particle or, or the Goodhart brothers, um, those are just some examples. Or maybe it's Bill Weiss from Ocean who's not a, a CTO, but he's had some wins you're more likely, you know, those that have done something before that have some history, that have some experience, that have kind of accredited network, they're very fundable. They can come back out. And what's really cool, Jeremy, is I think that there's a, there's a certain understanding to continue to support those founders before you. But now that's not to say you're going to write into check, a check into something you don't believe in or because it's your bro. Like that's not, that's not cool. But I do think that, kind of an understanding that if you've had your, your at bat and so long as it ticks those boxes for that particular investor, accredited investor, that you're going to give he or she an opportunity as well. And I think that's pretty, I think that's very much around the New York community. Um, it's, 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 it's a, it's a domino effect. Right. Um, and, um, and, and, and those people understand the space better. So they're closer to it. It's not as foreign as like maybe introducing Peloton before Peloton was Peloton. Right, right. Great. And, and, and so you, two main things that you talked about um, in your list from C2 Ventures was AI and blockchain. And um, before we get into blockchain, you know, you, Uru was a, a computer vision startup. Uh, we see a lot of those. Uh, you know, one of the things we looked at when we started Cognitive, we knew that we wanted to do deep learning play. Uh, my, as you said, technical co-founder, uh, was very good at big data, real-time uh, data uh, analysis and things like that. Our chief science officer was a, is a neuroscientist with a lot of deep, deep learning background. And a lot of that was vision. You know, a lot of deep learning is vision-based. Uh, but we felt like there wasn't a lot of focus on deep learning being used for really complex data problems like marketing. 
that's why we chose uh, marketing as a deep learning application and, and non-natural language processing and vision. But uh, for you with AI, do you still see uh, vision and natural language processing as, as the core of what, what you're looking at in the future? Or, or do you think uh, applications like cognitive are, are going to be more prevalent? Well, where I think it's I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, a neither or and I think it depends on the application or the or, or the platform. Um, um, uh, so yeah, I mean with Uru, it just you know from an Adobe perspective, it's something that's core to them. So I look, let's start with that, right? Adobe is 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 a believer in this space and those technologies that can support it at scale. Uru was a small startup, um, and this was kind of a, a quicker path for both sides a win for both sides, um, um, you know, as it relates to cognitive and, the, and, and, and a sort of a more efficient means in, in sort of media buying practices, um, it makes perfect sense. I mean, Jeremy, at the end of the day, I boil things down very simply. Like, you either, are you, can this technology, forget what it's called, can this technology make you money or save you money? <laughs> and, and the reality of it is, is sort of all, you know, all core uh, technology in regards to media buying, serving, targeting, um, attribution, um, you know, anything that sort of touches that lens has been very much built off of, a, of a, a, you know, off of sort of, you know, core, you know, pillars that have been around for a couple of decades in some cases are, are somewhat broken and a magnet to, um, um um, bad behavior, you know, bots, fraud, et cetera. So I think, you know, by introducing um, uh, anything that, you know, a, a core AI technology, sorry, that creates better efficiencies and, it, and hopefully at the same time some level of transparency and you can make or save money, there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of room. I think that the challenge is always just market, right? Market's always slower than innovation. You know, minimum two, sometimes three years. So, how do you how do you balance that pace? Um, is you know that's obviously something I imagine keeps you know keeps you that keeps you up at night. But I'm sure something that that you guys uh, you know think about. Yeah. So, what advice do you give to your to your advisees on on that sort of that when you're again getting back to this idea of app savvy and cognitive and these, uh, and Uru and these guys being sort of first to market in uh, these spaces, we, we as founders, I'm sure, are always hoping that things will grow more quickly uh, than they can because we're sort of educating the, uh, we're educating the market sometimes. Like, what, what advice do you give to your, to your advisees on that? Advisees or investors? Invest, your investments, where you're vibing, yeah. anything. So if you're an investor and you believe in it day one and you're seeing the traction, invest the shit out of it, double down, triple down. The worst thing, Jeremy, that happens, and, and, and quite frankly, this is one, one thing that happened to me at App Savvy was we were right. We were fundamentally right with everything that we said. We were going to do that. It, it was going to happen with the market, that user first, you know, F banners, like everything. We, we were right. Um, but by the time we pivoted into mobile, kind of five years into it, the market started to catch up, but now there's more competitors and we've kind of, you know, we've kind of gone through that first cycle of money and it was, it was painful because we, we literally spent, you know, four or five years educating the market 
again, you do the Google search, there's thousands of them. This is just an app savvy narrative, right? But so, so know that there need that, that there's a level of patience um, that, that's required and funding that's required to let, you know, kind of maintain that horse um, or, you know, new, new entries will come in with fresh legs, fresh money, and they'll basically capitalize on the first three or four years of work that you put in. And that's nothing short of being, uh, that's nothing short of a, uh, a, uh, something that's super annoying, um, but a reality. So I think um, the thing is, is, you know, advisors, investors, people around you, they need to understand what they're signing up for. If they think that this is kind of a, this ha- you know, there's some sort of outcome or liquidity or event in a short period of time, given where the market is, then maybe it's not the right fit. So I think part of it, that's the CEO and people like you setting those expectations and ground rules and guardrails, if you will. And then the other side is making sure that you don't just look at this as how much can they achieve in 18 months, and um, but to also ensure that the company is well-funded uh, to to capitalize on the fact when the market does get realized, right? Um, that 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 there's a lot there's still horsepower to to take advantage. Yeah, and so uh, obviously capitalization is always a big question. But do you feel like founders in these companies should uh, be be patient be patient in a way that if and when it does hit. Uh, should they have confidence that the investors will recapitalize them in time for for growth, or should they be paranoid that that won't happen, and and they should uh, be very defensive of their capital early on? Good question, man. Honestly, it's the it's really the latter first. So I'm not going to answer that one as it's both, because then that would be a pretty boring interview <laughs> it's it's the latter i'll tell you one thing one of the biggest mistakes i see is is just this just spending money stupidly um right. and 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 you know over hiring because the plan's there you know so we have to get 10 more bodies out so we can three extra i haven't seen that work i just have not seen that work at scale so i think um you know um um, not going crazy on your office space, keeping headcount manageable, and really being um, financially smart about the, the the dollars you have. And you know, again, I'm just going to tell Arbor again. You know, Arbor, um, th- those guys had you know one of the biggest exits in New York in the last couple of years. And like you know, you literally were. I felt that you know I felt unsafe when I was visiting the office because it was like you know down by. By, by you know the financial district and like tripping over wires I mean it was like it wasn't pretty <laughs> but no one gave a shit and there was only like a few things the press was there there was like no like so if you want all the fancy stuff you know go to Google so I I, I think those principles set early can burn low uh, and making sure your incentives are aligned both with employees and you know their interest in stock versus cash and hey this is what it's going to be it, it sounds so obvious but everybody makes that mistake. I made that mistake. I told myself I wasn't going to over office, over index on the new office in Soho. I did. So it's easy to get caught on your own supply or high when it's up to the right, but no one can predict. The one thing you can't predict, including cognitive or, you know, any other machine learning or AI business, you can't predict what the market 
shifts or does. You can kind of understand right. where to sit it. So, so, so you got to be kind of prepared for the rainy day, which will come. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, we, we've both been in the business a long time and seen some crazy things and a lot of different spending and a lot of different money spent on smoke and mirrors and all those things trying to drive, I don't know, something, some revenue top line, but the bottom line is looking, it always looks bad. So we've seen a lot of that. That's something that it's like a cautionary tale that hopefully everybody remembers. Hopefully they don't forget because, you know, I think we are, we are doing, people are making money now, you know, and I think that the fundamentals of these businesses have gotten a lot better because people have learned a lot of lessons, but let's hope that, you know, moving on to this last topic of investing blockchain, uh, you know, I, 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 there's a lot of buzz. There's a lot of investments, but there's a lot of skepticism in folks. Mm -hmm. I think like us who've been around a long time and have heard tons of pitches of, of ad tech uh, and always, feels like um, always feels like uh, disconnected. Sorry, sorry. We'll, we'll edit through that. Um, Okay. So with blockchain, uh, with blockchain, you know, it's one of those buzzwords that everybody is investing a lot in. I see a lot of parallels there to a lot of the big mistakes we've made in the dot-com bust and the ad tech uh, boom and all these things, a lot of spending, a lot of news, a lot of PR. And I just find a lot of skepticism, mm-hmm. especially amongst our group of, of uh, peers that have been in this a long time and heard a lot of these pitches uh, and, and sort of the, the feedback that I get from a lot of people when I ask, because I'm scratching my head sometimes too, is um, what is – if I can't get somebody to, in very layman's terms, explain a big problem that it's going to solve, um, I worry. And mm-hmm. uh, just another quick anecdote, I, I was at a dinner with uh, the guy, one of the founders of Consensus and, and, um, and Ethereum, and his, his point was that uh, blockchain engenders trust. Uh, and it, and it mm-hmm. creates trust. And, and, and I think uh, my concern is that in the United States, we don't have a huge, yes, there's always a little bit of a trust problem, but we don't have a huge trust problem in the banking system and the mm-hmm. credit system and all these things. But you mentioned that you were invested in an Indian uh, blockchain oh, well, startup. Well, well, so maybe, yeah, no, the, uh, it was, it was um, well, so one I agree with your sentiment in regards to blockchain. It's, it, it's, let me give you the example, Jeremy. In the world of Unicast and location companies, there are seven, eight players. Four of them, in the course of two months, literally put press releases out that they're changing their entire um, kind of um, location data position or play around blockchain. It's like, come on, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's a joke. I'm sorry. It's a joke. Um, the fundamental tech isn't there. There's no way you can execute on it. So people, it, it, to me, in a lot of cases, if you're just sort of rebranding yourself, you're showing a sign of weakness and that something's not going and you think your press release is going to save your business, and sadly it's not, okay? That's just reality. Um, but I do think that there, for places, listen, here's my bias example. 
um, Montego or Montego, as all of the investors and advisors in the company say slightly differently, um, former CEO of or founder of Tremor, um, uh, Jesse Chernard. Um, you look at, check out the website, look at the people behind it. These are like, you know, 20 plus year banking executives. This is not your classic sort of startup. And they, he spent years in India understanding that that kind of currency, there's a fundamental problem there. So right. it kind of supports your example, which is they want to attack it in a, in linking three financial institutes. I'll send you the link after this call of ensuring that, there's a, tra- there's a healthy transaction in a visible way, right? But, yeah, it doesn't make sense for everybody. It's not needed. So blockchain, people aren't screaming for it. But in India, we're moving cash and, um, um, and sort of how financial institu- institutions um, behave or connect with each other, it was fundamental. So they arguably they have the first live, live example of it working. So – yeah, it, it's not an Indian company. It's actually a U.S.-based company that went to their their they're finding their first customers overseas. If that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that that was one of the main learnings I got out of this dinner was that okay, if it's a trust question, then then I think this blockchain, especially from a cryptocurrency or transaction ledger ledger system, should be much more valuable and uh, have a bigger consumer. Um, adoption in places where that financial trust is not as strong as the United States. Correct. So, exactly. um, so a, fi- a couple final questions. One, let's talk about the Super Bowl. Uh, oh, no. You know, your face uh, is on this NFL uh, highlights uh, thing of that Super Bowl. You were there. Uh, you didn't seem Jeremy, very did I happy. Did I ever say that I liked you, or that <laughs> did, I didn't? I didn't. I didn't put that on record, did I? <laughs> uh, okay, carry on. Why, why don't you tell us a little bit about the experience of going to Super Bowl, regardless of the win or the loss? I mean, I, I've, I've I've obviously never been. So I'm a lucky New England Patriots fan. Born, wasn't born there actually. Raised there since three. Been to had seasons tickets when they were one in. So the Steve Grogan era. So before Pat's fans get bashed, there was a time when we lost and sucked. Um, but I, I I I witnessed the Atlanta game comeback, which was the best day of my life. Even though when uh, in the to my wife. But I think we'd say it's the wedding day. Um, the kids were up there, but the Super Bowl comeback against Atlanta. So we doubled down. We went. We got some crazy hookups for tickets to the NFL. First row behind Pat, and um, incredible experience. But obviously, uh, not the outcome. And more so, the the highlight was high five and Justin Timberlake during the halftime show. The downside, as you alluded to, was um, the most pitiful saddened facial expression is trapped on NFL <laughs> film for the rest of my life. So thanks, uh, thanks, thanks for that. Well, you can't, you can't feel too badly. You know, the Pats have done pretty well. They have a good track record. You've won a lot of Super Bowls recently. You know, Philly was, was their first time. Um, you gotta, you gotta give them a little I'm, bit, right? Listen, we're not, <laughs> we, you, and that wasn't at the giant bosses. That would have been more painful. So I, <laughs> yeah. I, but but leaving Minneapolis um, when it was twenty below that was uh, that was a lot of fun. But yeah, listen, my friend um, my friend from Prio, um, 
uh, posted something which which was great, and, it, and we were surrounded by lots of silly fans and kids, dads. So after three days of kind of depression, sad, and questioning everything, when you actually start thinking about a sports town like Philly and what it did for that generation of, of, of adults and dads and young boys and girls to celebrate it, because you never know when that comes, you know what? It, it's it's okay. <laughs> it's it, it brought so many – I'm not just saying this because it took me weeks to say this seriously, but it brought a lot of, you know – people happiness so that's pretty cool Un- unfortunately it was at, at, at our at our uh what's the word at your expense well good now uh you finished up your your two years at unicast as president and uh just wondering quickly what what's next so i mean i think i gave you a lot of i left you some breadcrumbs on this call jeremy but basically i see still so much opportunity as relates to working with um, with founders, but to be able to write bigger checks, to, to advise even further, to use my syndicate of founders that I've invested in to, to bring them to the table. Um, um, there's still ide- there's ideas that are being presented that that I, that that I could potentially incubate or help incubate and start under the C2V umbrella, which has been working. So, um, yeah, if you kind of fast forward, this is something that 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 is still heavily focused on early stage, but we could be starting companies out of there. We could be writing bigger checks, um, 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 but all under the premise of being founder, founder first, uh, hustle for the founder, um, which kind of sounds cliche, but from what I understand, one of the kind of few, few businesses that does that. And that gives you a little bit, that gives you a little bit of a, a, a taste or tease, uh, as we, uh, as I'm, you know, kind of in the in the building in the building mode um, over the next couple of months. But at a personal level, look forward to sharing more with you and getting your uh, your input, your take. Because um, um, at the end of the day, it's about the people, right? Absolutely. Well, great. Thanks a lot, Chris. You guys heard it here. Uh, if you have a great idea and a technical co-founder. Uh, Chris Cunningham would love to hear from you. So thank you very much, Chris Cunningham, for being our inaugural guest on the mm-hmm. podcast. And uh, we will we will see you guys next time. Awesome, Jeremy. Thanks for the call. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.